This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome to the Diabetes Knowledge and Practice Podcast, your bi-weekly source of news, views, and updates in diabetes care. Today's episode is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk AS, who has had no influence on the content or choice of faculty. As always, I'm James Bannister. And I'm Emma Phillips. Today, we're taking a moment to look at a few noteworthy and novel antihyperglycemic agents in development for type 2 diabetes, including once-weekly insulin, dual GLP-GIP agonists, and the oxidative phosphorylation blocker imeglamin. After a quick review of available data, we'll join Dr. Athena Phyllis-Simikas for a brief discussion of how these agents may be used in the future. One example of these relatively novel agents is once-weekly insulin. At this year's EASD, for the first time, phase two data was published regarding insulin ICODEC, a basal insulin with a half-life of 196 hours. This insulin is currently under investigation in type 2 diabetes, but a phase two study evaluating efficacy and safety of switching to insulin ICODEC from insulin Glargine U100 observed a significantly increased time and range among the ICODEC group without an increase in hyperglycemia risk as compared to the Glargine U100 group. This provides an interesting possibility for the use of ICODEC to provide similar basal coverage as currently available insulins, but with fewer injections. But logistically, how should it be used? Another poster, presented by Ildiko Lingve, explored different titration algorithms, where ICODEC doses were increased or decreased by 21 or 28 units weekly, depending on whether the patient was above or below an average three-day target pre-breakfast FPG of 4.4 to 7.2 millimoles per litre. Both algorithms were found to be similar to a near-identical algorithm for insulin glargine U100, where doses were adjusted by four units weekly, depending on whether patients were on target. Another novel agent is imeglamin, the first in a new potential class of oral antihyperglycemic agents. The molecule is a tetrahydrotriazine that inhibits oxidative phosphorylase and is currently in phase three trials to treat type 2 diabetes. One of these trials, times three, was presented as a poster at this year's EASD by the lead author, Julie Duborg, which observed statistically significant improvements in HbA1c with imeglamin versus placebo by week 16, and results from the 32-week open-label extension period are anticipated to further inform the use of this agent in treating type 2 diabetes. Finally, another novel area of developmental therapeutics are dual and even tri-acting receptor agonists, which stimulate GLP-1, GIP, and or glucagon receptors. One such triple agent, HM152011, is still in very early development, but animal models demonstrated a potential therapeutic effect in improving NASH-related fibrosis. The most developed agent in this area of research, however, is tezepatide, a dual GIP-GLP1 receptor agonist, which was the focus of several presentations and posters at EASD 2020. Phase 2b data, presented by Valentina Pirro, demonstrated improved HbA1c, body weight, and insulin sensitivity in people with type 2 diabetes as compared to dulaglutide, with patients receiving 15 mg of tezepatide achieving an HbA1c reduction of 2.1% and weight loss of 11.3 kg, compared to 1.1% and 2.7 kg respectively in the dulaglutide 1.5 mg group. Phase 3 trials are anticipated to inform dose selection and how multi-receptor agonists may be used in daily practice. 
So that's a quick snapshot of these three novel therapeutics. But assuming all three do someday become available, where will they fit into the model of treatment escalation and cardiorenal protection? To help answer this question is Dr. Athena Phyllis-Simikas, Corporate Vice President of the Scripps Whittier Diabetes Institute at Scripps Health and the Director of Community Engagement at Scripps Research Translational Institute in San Diego, California. Thank you so much for joining this discussion of novel agents, Dr. Phyllis-Simikas. Let's start by looking into Zepatide. This GLP-1 GIP agonist is shaping up to be more potent at reducing body weight and HbA1c than dulaglutide. But is there any evidence yet to suggest if it features cardiovascular protection like dulaglutide? If not, given the focus on multifactorial effects and cardiorenal protection seen in guideline recommendations, will there be a place for this agent in current treatment models if approved? So thanks for asking the question. Uh, Terzepatide, I think, is an incredibly interesting molecule, mostly because of the effect on on its weight loss together with the glucose-lowering effect. Uh, We know that from our experience with the GLP-1 receptor agonists alone, that this benefit uh, is not only good because of the, as you mentioned, the cardiovascular, the potential cardiovascular benefits, but also the implications for the patients themselves. They, uh, they might at first be hesitant to take a, an injection, but when they see the outcome of weight loss, it, it certainly is encouraging to them. So uh, you have a, a compound that can yield high patient, patient satisfaction, as well as good outcomes in glucose control uh, and potential cardiovascular results. So I do think this will be a, a compound that will be taken up once it is approved. Uh, But can we say that it will be used effectively for both renal and cardiac protection? I would be cautious to say we really need the studies first. Uh, It looks like it could be positive for this, but I would really like to see some hard outcomes demonstrating that before we, uh, we would jump to that conclusion. Wonderful. Advancing further down the treatment escalation model, we have insulins. What kind of changes can we expect to see at this stage if a once-weekly basal insulin is approved? Once-weekly basal insulins are are incredibly interesting to me, mostly because it brings back my memories of when I first heard about a very long-acting once-daily basal insulin, and I was very concerned that hypoglycemia would not allow this to really become a reality. You know, having seen the course over the last eight to 10 years now of true once daily second generation basal insulins, and that they not only are effective, uh, they're easier for patients to use, but they don't cause hypoglycemia. Uh, As a matter of fact, they have uh, less hypo, I shouldn't say that they don't cause hypoglycemia at all. They have less hypoglycemia than some of our more traditional first generation or early generation basal insulins, such as NPH and glargine. So that's encouraging. And uh, the once weekly now, we are beginning to see similar data. And I have to say that I'm much more open-minded now to the fact that a once weekly basal insulin really can be very effective and not cause excess hypoglycemia. So I am looking forward to this. Uh, The studies are ongoing. There are phase three studies now that are going on and uh, we will be able to compare and look at the, the effects Uh, compared to our newer generation basal insulins, once daily insulins that are already available. Marvellous, thank you. On a similar note, if IGADEC turns out to be similar to daily basal insulins in terms of efficacy and safety, 
Will the combination of a once-weekly insulin and once-weekly GLP-1 receptor agonist become standard as an escalation approach for those with type 2 diabetes? Or will there still be a place for daily agents or basal bolus combinations? It's interesting to think about whether we could do a combination once-weekly basal insulin together with a once-weekly GLP-1 receptor agonist. It seems like that would be a very natural progression of where we would want to take patients that aren't controlled with either orals or orals and GLP-1 receptor agonists alone. Would we still need some element of basal bolus or um, daily agents along with this? I do think we would see still require both because of the, uh, the variation in types of type 2 diabetes. We've seen now with, the, with genetic studies that are being done, as well as uh, looking at the the underlying C-peptides uh, and other elements of, of trying to distinguish what type of type 2 diabetes is actually going on, uh, there will be people that will be more insulin deficient that will go on to need basal bolus insulin in the long run. Uh, there are others that might be more insulin resistant and do well with agents that might combine a little bit of an SGLD2 inhibitor, uh, even a TZD together with your insulin agents. So I do think we are going to continue to need all of these combinations, but it does seem uh, fascinating to think that you could give someone one injection once a week uh, and, and meet their needs for both insulin and GLP-1 receptor agonists to get good control. Uh, I think patients will be quite happy to, to, uh, to be able to have this option available to them. Wonderful. Thank you so much for such a detailed answer. So overall, what is the most exciting thing currently in development, in your opinion? And that could be anywhere from early investigational trials through to phase three and registrational trials. What is the most interesting, exciting thing, in your opinion, that's currently in the pipeline for type 2 diabetes? Oh my. You know, I'm not sure if it needs to be a pharmaceutical agent rather than technological approaches to managing diabetes, because I really do believe that some of the technology we have available today is really where the revolution is in taking care of diabetes. We need the pharmaceutical agents, but if we could do it in, in combination with continuous glucose monitoring, we can then tailor exactly what kind of agent we want to provide someone to meet where they're having hyper or hypoglycemic episodes throughout the day, throughout the week. Uh, with those combined technologies with pharmaceutical agents, I think we will achieve much better control overall. Interesting. And you definitely raise a good point of using novel technologies with novel pharmacotherapies. So just going back to the once-weekly insulin, how do you think that would work with an increasing use of continuous glucose monitoring? Would that help for dose adjustment, for example? Or would there be other areas of, for example, identifying whether a patient would be more suitable for daily injections or continuous subcutaneous insulin infusion versus a once-weekly agent? Right. So I do think that using continuous glucose monitoring with once-weekly daily insulin will allow us to see first if they truly are avoiding hypoglycemia or if there's any hidden hypoglycemia. It would also tell us if they are having postprandial rises, continued postprandial rises, even if their overnight values might be okay. And if there are, that would indicate either you could add something like an SGLT2 inhibitor, which has a little bit better postprandial control. Uh, you could add bol bolus insulin at that point if needed. So you really could tailor uh, exactly what they need. In addition to, of course, 
um, never forgetting lifestyle intervention. You could ask someone to go out and take a walk after they have a meal and they could really see the result of what that does uh, when they're watching their, their continuous glucose monitor readings. So I, I do think the combination with the once, basal, once weekly basal insulin uh, would be truly fascinating. Excellent. Thank you so much again for joining us today, Dr. Phyllis Amikas. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm always fascinated with what's coming out uh, new in the market and for our patients. Uh, we really like to offer them everything that's available as long as it is safe and efficacious. Thanks again. This brings us to the end of today's time. To summarise, a range of novel therapeutics are in development, including once-weekly insulins and once-weekly dual GLP-1 GIP agonists. These new tools may offer not only improved convenience, such as fewer injections, but also potentially stronger effects than available therapeutics. With these exciting developments on the horizon, there's never been a better time to stay up to date with new data. And one way to do precisely that is to ensure you and your friends are subscribed to this podcast. Thank you so much again for joining us. As a reminder, all references discussed in the episode are available in the description, and we'd love to hear from you on social media. You can also access all of our free accredited CME content at knowledgeandpractice.eu, including interactive case studies and packages for small group learning. Thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to joining you again in the next episode, where we'll be kicking off the next topic area for this season, which is managing comorbidities in type 2 diabetes.